0: I do invite you to open your Bibles this morning as we turn to God's Word, and we're looking to Mark chapter 8. Uh, next Sunday, I'll be away, and Dr. Light will be preaching. As a brief reminder, when I return, we're going to take a brief break from Mark and do a topical series on worship. But for this morning, we come to the climax of the first half of the Gospel of Mark. Mark. Throughout the chapters we've looked at so far, we've faced one repeated question. It's been asked over and over and over again. The question is this, who is this Jesus? Who is this who teaches with such authority? Who is this who claims to forgive sins? Who is this who can still a storm with a word? Who is this who can cast out demons? The question's been asked again and again, but... No one aside from the demons so far has given an answer. Instead, even as recently as last week, we saw the disciples distracted by the practical question of what's for dinner, so that Jesus was left asking, are your hearts still hardened? Do you still have eyes and not see, ears and not hear? But today we hit a turning point for the disciples— it all changes by the power of God at work in his people. And so we want to read this morning from Mark chapter 8. We'll read verses 22 to 30. Follow along as we read God's word. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say, I am? And they told him John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Father, this is your word, and we thank you for it. We pray that by your Spirit's power, you would use it in our hearts and lives this morning. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Medical statistics tell us that one in four children will have vision problems that need treatment in some way. The challenge is identifying it. You see, later in life, degenerating vision is usually easier to spot because we're losing something that we know we've had. But with a child, it can be harder to spot because children grow up assuming that things are normal for them. They don't know that something is wrong with their vision. Teddy Roosevelt had serious nearsightedness as a child and he didn't realize it until he was 13 years old. It was when he'd received a a gun and he went shooting with his friends that he suddenly realized they were all aiming at things he couldn't see. So it was that he received glasses and if you know Teddy Roosevelt you know for the rest of his career those glasses were a staple of his image But at age 13, on receiving the glasses, Teddy Roosevelt declared, I had no idea the world was this beautiful. I was reading another woman's report recently. She shared how as a child she was driving with her mother, and her mother was asking her to test her reading when she realized she couldn't see any of the road signs. So she took her and got her glasses And lo and behold, this woman said, she said, I never realized before that trees were green because they had leaves. You never see the individual leaves. And she said, in school, I knew that every classroom had a funny circle on the wall, but I never realized they were clocks. So what a difference it makes when you receive glasses and suddenly you can see things clearly. Well, in our passage this morning, we meet a blind man. He didn't just go from nearsighted to normal with a pair of glasses. He went from blind to seeing everything clearly at the touch of Jesus. And that miracle serves as a visual image of the spiritual sight that's given to the disciples on the road to Caesarea Philippi. In other words, I think we can say this at the beginning. The main point of both of these stories is the same. The power of God's Spirit at work through Jesus opens eyes, both physical and spiritual, so that His people can see clearly. The power of God's Spirit at work through Jesus opens physical and spiritual eyes so that His people can see clearly. Let's start in verses 22 to 26 where we look at Jesus' power to open physical eyes. You know, if you've been following with us through Mark 8, Jesus and his disciples have crisscrossed the Sea of Galilee multiple times in this chapter, but they finally arrive in verse 22 at Bethsaida on the northern tip of the sea. And we know Jesus had been here before because Mark 6 tells us that Jesus and his disciples were on the way to Bethsaida when Jesus had walked on the water to join them. And Matthew eleven twenty-one. 21 tells us that Jesus announced greater judgment against Bethsaida for failing to repent in the face of the mighty works he had done there. But even though we know that he's been to Bethsaida, this is the first, and I believe, only miracle that's actually recorded in detail that's done in Bethsaida. While he's there, some people bring Jesus a blind man and they ask him to heal him and in many ways, Jesus' healing of this blind man perfectly follows the pattern of his other healings, and particularly the healing of the deaf and the mute man we saw just two weeks ago. Again, Jesus takes the man aside privately. Again, Jesus applies spit to his eyes, just as he had applied spit to the mute man's tongue. We talked then about how this was often a sign of an intent to heal. Again, Jesus touches the man physically, just as he did before. And, and while we talk about that, I don't think we should take lightly how many times now Mark has recorded the fact that Jesus touched someone. It's something he draws attention to again and again and again. And it's important because Jesus, as we know, is perfectly able to heal someone just by speaking a word. We've seen him do that. And yet it seems in Mark that Jesus has a particular delight in healing people by touching them. Even if that person is not clean, not professionally dressed, a beggar, a leper, whom no one wants to be close to. And I think this emphasis on physical touch is such a beautiful picture of Jesus' compassion and care for us. Because Jesus treats us the same way. Jesus doesn't sit up in heaven and keep our weak, sinful, foolish, talking, off-putting behavior at arm's length. No, Jesus came as a man to dwell with us To be near us, that he might sympathize with us in our weaknesses and heal us with a touch and comfort us and redeem us by his presence with us. That's the kind of savior Jesus is. So every time we come to another miracle that emphasizes that Jesus touched them, may we be reminded of the delight of this savior to be with and to touch his people in order to heal and redeem them. But as much as this healing in Jesus' touch fits the pattern of what Jesus does in other instances, this healing is also different than any other healing recorded. In verse 23, after laying his hands on the man, Jesus does something surprising. He does something he doesn't do, I don't think, in any of his other miracles. He asks a question. See, in every other miracle, Jesus makes a declaration. I am willing, be cleaned. Go home, your daughter is well. Ephatha, be opened. Jesus declares something, and it is done. But here, he doesn't make a declaration. He asks a question. Do you see anything? Why would he do that? Well, and then it's backed up, maybe even more puzzling, because the man's sight is clearly still blurry. We read that he laid his eyes on him, he had spit on his eyes, but then he says that he can see people, but they look like trees walking. Now, commentators have asked, well, what was he seeing there? And it might be that he saw men carrying sticks on their back, uh, and and it looked like trees walking. We We don't know. But to ask what he saw actually misses the key point. The text's clear point is that this man's sight is not perfectly clear. It's blurry. And so Jesus lays his hands on his eyes again. And this time, when he opened his eyes, the text says he could see everything clearly. Now, what's going on here? Why does Jesus ask a question, and why does he seem to heal in two steps? Well, we can say right off the bat that it's not because Jesus' miracle didn't quite work the first time. And Jesus is not like the, the magician here who tries to do his hat and get the bunny out, and, but only the ears stick out, and he's got to quite, you know, try to try it again and get the whole bunny to come out. That's not what Jesus is doing here. It's clear that Jesus' intention is to heal this man by steps and he wants the man and the people around it to see and understand what he's doing. Well, why would he do that? The text doesn't tell us explicitly, but I think the narrative gives us a good idea. Jesus is guiding this entire event. He's guiding it while the disciples watch him. And I think part of his point in asking the question, do you see anything, is so that not just the man, but the disciples around him will know exactly what's happening and how things are playing out. He wants the disciples to have this picture of vision restored, but not fully. And then, when Jesus applies his hands a second time, clear sight. I think Jesus is doing kind of what we do as parents sometimes. You know how as a parent... We could bake the cookies ourselves with no problem. We could empty the dishwasher or clean the bathroom with no problem. But sometimes we slow down and we do it step by step. And we explain and ask questions so that our children will understand. And I think that's what Jesus is doing for the disciples here. Only in this case, as the disciples watch, Jesus is not teaching them how to heal blindness. He's giving his disciples and us a visible picture of what is happening with their own spiritual understanding and vision of him. After all, the disciples spiritually are very much in the place of this blind man. They have come to Jesus and they have followed Jesus, but despite all they have seen, they have still not understood him clearly. They've understood enough to know that they should follow him, but they have not understood who he is. And this miracle is working as a bridge between the previous passage— where Jesus would ask, do you not see yet? To the passage that's to come. It's working as a bridge from blurry vision and misunderstanding to you are the Christ. And so I believe Jesus' physical healing here in front of his disciples is intentionally carried out as a picture and a promise of what he is doing in their hearts and minds. Of the spiritual process at work in them. And so with that picture fresh in our minds, let's look at verses 27 to 30 a bit more clearly where we see Jesus' power to open spiritual eyes in the lives of His disciples. After their stay in Bethsaida, we read that Jesus went on with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. That would have been about a 25-mile walk north that Jesus was taking with His disciples. And you know, it takes a little while to walk 25 miles. And I often wonder... What was the conversation like as Jesus walked with his disciples? Because, in between all the dramatic events and the healings and the confrontation with the Pharisees, Jesus and his disciples spent a lot of time walking together. So, what did they talk about? What did they laugh about? Which was the disciple that was always cracking the jokes? Which was the one who was always missing the jokes? What role did Jesus play in the conversation? I wonder whether those long walks were like our long car rides. You know how it is in a long car ride. You build relationships. Your conversation goes in and out of chatter about least favorite foods and favorite foods into how's your life and significant things of your heart to playing I spy in the alphabet game to pass the time. Were Were those walks like that? And the Bible doesn't tell us specifically, but what Scripture does tell us, what Scripture does clearly show us, is that some of Jesus' most significant conversations with his disciples took place while they were walking on the road. And here we have one of them in this passage. As they're walking along, Jesus tosses out a simple question, but it's a loaded question. Who do people say that I am? Now, on the one hand, that's a very simple question, but on the other hand, this is the question half of Israel has been arguing about for eight chapters. Who is this guy? Sometimes it's asked in the sense of, who does he think he is that he can say that? Other times it's asked in the sense of, who must he be if he can do that? But as people have sorted through all the possibilities, none of their answers seems to be the right fit. But the disciples give an executive summary here of the past 12 months worth of opinions coming out of Galilee. They say, well, some people say, you're John the Baptist. Other people say, you're Elijah. Other people say you're one of the Old Testament prophets. And it's worth noting, as one commentator does, that all of those answers are high praise for Jesus. They're identifying Jesus with the most significant figures from all of Israel's history. And yet even those identifications are completely inadequate. Because John the Baptist, Elijah, Moses, the prophets of old, they're all shadows, prototypes, foreshadowing the Messiah that would come and Jesus shatters those categories. But this question that Jesus asks is just priming the pump, isn't it? Because unlike us, Jesus is not really concerned about what the crowds think of him. He's not worried about his poll numbers. He's not worried about what everyone's saying about him. This question is just meant to prepare the disciples for the question he's really interested in asking. And that's the second question he asks. But who do you say that I am? Now we've said this before, I'll say it again. The entire first half of Mark has been building this question. Who is Jesus? The narrator told us in verse 1, Mark 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God told us at his baptism, at the beginning of his ministry, this is my beloved Son. "...in whom I'm well pleased." The demons have told us a couple of times, "...I know who you are, you are the Holy One of God." But so far, no person has been able to answer that question. Even as Jesus has steadily revealed His authority to teach, and His authority to forgive sins, His power over demons, His power over the wind and the waves, His ability to heal, His ability to miraculously feed with bread, doing all of these things in fulfillment of the Old Testament through all of that, no person has been able to declare who he is. But after revealing all that he has through these eight chapters, Jesus now puts the question directly to his disciples. Disciples, you know what other people say. You know what you have seen. Who do you say that I am? And that's the question that every single one of us this morning has to answer. The question is never just what do people think about jesus what do my parents say about jesus what does church say school say the question for each of us is who do you say that jesus is and when confronted with the question directly peter speaking on behalf of the disciples becomes the first person to respond with this ringing declaration you are the christ now as matthew records it peter said you are the christ the Son of the living God. And this confession is a climactic moment in the first half of Mark. That is who Jesus is, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now this confession broke all sorts of categories for the Jews. Peter may not have been able to rattle off the Nicene Creed, but he knows enough to know that to call Jesus the Son of the living God was to identify him so closely with God in a sense that Jews would have considered blasphemous. But Jesus could forgive sins. He could stop storms. He could raise the dead. And who but God and the Son of God could do that? Jesus had given all the proof necessary to demonstrate the truth of what God had said at his baptism. This is my Son. And to call Jesus the Christ means that Jesus is the anointed one, the promised Messiah. It was to identify Jesus as the one that God had been promising since Genesis 3.15 when he promised that a seed of Eve's would come one day to crush the head of the serpent. It was to identify Jesus as the son of David, that heir who would sit on David's throne and redeem Israel and shepherd God's people and reign in righteousness. It was to identify him as the servant of the Lord who would take away Israel's sin and redeem Israel and turn them back to the Lord and then become a light to the nations as well. And so whether Peter realized it or not, to call him the Christ was to put him as the heir of all those promises that God had been making across the centuries. And this confession is the turning point in this gospel. Mark began by telling us who Jesus is. He has spent eight chapters showing us who Jesus is. And now the disciples, represented by Peter, have declared the truth and confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Jesus has opened physical eyes. He also opens spiritual eyes. But having seen these two stories, how should they shape our understanding? There are three things, I think, that we should take away and apply to our hearts from the stories this morning. The first is this. Notice that in both stories, clear sight and understanding are completely, 100% bestowed by the power of God on the recipients. The blind man does nothing but come to Jesus for help. Jesus takes it from there, healing him by the power of God with a touch in the way that he knows is best. It is a gift of his grace. And the disciples, for all that they have seen of Jesus, it's not that the disciples have finally really applied their minds and come to this great logical conclusion here. No, over eight chapters... Of all they've seen from Jesus, they were not able to grasp who this was. It was God's Spirit who revealed it to them. Which is why if we turn to Matthew 16 and read the parallel account, Jesus' first words after Peter's confession were, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Both of these instances are the work of God's Spirit, in the blind man and in the disciples. And the universal testimony of Scripture is that while you and I are responsible to repent of sin and put our faith in Christ, yet our ability to do so depends completely on the power of God's Spirit revealing these truths to us. And so when our eyes are open for any one of us here this morning who can confess Jesus is the Christ, He is my Savior, our thanks and praise go to God alone Because just like for the disciples, to be able to confess that happens only when God our Father reveals it to us. And that is such a rich blessing. It is a gift of God's overflowing grace. And that in and of itself should remind us that no matter what is happening in our lives, no matter what difficulties we may face, no matter what question we might ask about, God, what are you doing in my life? If we have come to a place of knowing who Jesus is and confessing him as our Savior, God has given us a tremendous blessing, a tremendous gift of his grace. And we should rejoice and give thanks and praise to God alone. For our ability and our understanding to confess Christ as our Savior. To Him be the praise. We see that in these two stories. There's another thing, a second thing that these stories show us. I think these stories show us a pattern that we should expect in our own walk with Christ. It's a pattern of increasing understanding, of increasing clarity of sight of who Christ is and what He has done that takes place over the course of our lives. With the blind man, Jesus gave him sight, but it was not perfectly clear at first, and then he gave him fuller, clear sight. With the disciples, Jesus called them to follow him, and they had the understanding to know we ought to follow Jesus, but they didn't understand who he was. But then by the power of God's Spirit, they come to this understanding to confess that he is the Christ. But of course, even once they confess who he is, they still don't understand what he's come to do. And the second half of Mark is going to be Jesus showing the disciples what he has come to do. It's this increasing understanding of Christ. But this growth is not just part of the process of coming to know Jesus the first time. Scripture indicates that our entire walk with Christ should be a process of increasing knowledge of him of increasing understanding of who he is and what he has done, a process that will culminate ultimately when we stand before him face to face. And this process is at the heart of Paul's prayer for the churches. You know, what you pray for reveals what you find most important. You pray for the things that you value. And when we start to look at how Paul prays, what does Paul pray for? What does he value What does he long for in the lives of the churches and the people who know the Lord? Well, Colossians 1, 9 and 10, Paul prays that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work, and what? And increasing in the knowledge of God. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are believers Paul is praying for. He's not praying for that initial understanding to come to faith. He's praying for an increase in the knowledge of God. He's praying that the eyes of believers might be further enlightened and opened, that they might know more and more what is the greatness of God's salvation. That's what Paul prays for when he prays for the churches. And I wonder, do our prayers indicate that same hunger and longing for a growth in the knowledge of God and the understanding of Christ? And of course, Even as we do so, we're anticipating that final climactically clear vision of Christ at the end of time. You remember 1 Corinthians 13, 12, what Paul says there, "...for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am known." Isn't that a beautiful hope? And so, brothers and sisters, when we come to Christ and put our faith in Him, that's not the end of the process— We haven't received the fullness at that moment. That is the beginning of a process of growing and increasing knowledge of God, increasing joy in Christ, increasing understanding of what He has done and the richness of His salvation, and an increasing hope for that day when we stand before Him and we shall see clearly who He is and all that He has done. That should spark in us an eager hunger and desire for that growth and understanding. That's the second thing. Finally, I want us just to consider the significance of Peter's confession for us today. Do you notice that at the end of both of these stories, Jesus commands the recipients not to tell anyone about him? The blind man, he says, go home and don't even go into the villages. To the disciples, he says, he strictly charges them not to tell anyone about him. Now, we've seen this and talked about it several times through Mark already. We've seen that Jesus does not want to raise messianic expectations about him because he knows that the idea of what people are expecting in the Messiah is very different than what he has come to do. And so the formerly blind man and the disciples are told not to tell anyone who he is. And that order will remain in effect until resurrection morning. And on that resurrection morning, that command is changed to go and tell everyone who I am and what I have done. See, that reversal will come because the church is going to be built on this confession of the apostles. The church is going to grow as the church proclaims from Jerusalem then to the end of the earth, this confession that Jesus is the Christ and salvation is found in no one else but in Him. So if if Mark... Eight finds us in the don't tell anyone what they won't understand yet stage you and i now find ourselves in the tell everyone who i am and what i have done stage because we are called to be salt and light we're called to be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks the hope that we have we are to eagerly invite others to come and see jesus this past week, we had our quarterly presbytery meeting as pastors and elders gathered from around the region. And I was struck as our three campus pastors, RUF campus pastors from Penn State and Millersville, shared stories of what God is doing. And they shared at least three different stories of students who have come to know Jesus for the first time in the past year. And each one of them came to know Christ because a sibling or a friend or a sweetmate. mate invited them to a Bible study or invited them to RUF, that they might hear and learn who Jesus is. In other words, this pattern of confessing Jesus as the Christ and inviting others to know him is leading new people to know Jesus, and it's happening in Pennsylvania, right here in Lancaster County in 2022. As God is continuing to grow his church, based on this confession of who Jesus is. And when I look around here this morning on a Sunday morning between these two services, I see a thousand people who know Jesus Christ and who are going to go out from here into every corner of this county, schools, office buildings, neighborhoods. And if you confess Jesus Christ, you're living in this tell everyone who I am stage. Invite them to know him. And my prayer is that each of us would be faithful to do that. Faithful as the Lord gives us opportunity. Praying for open doors for the Word right here in our midst. Because all around us, there are more eyes that do not yet see. Just like ours didn't. And we are praying, longing for them to know Jesus. Longing for them to know Jesus. Because there is none other than the Christ, the Son of the living God who can rescue us from the dominion of darkness and bring us in to the kingdom of his love. We long for that because he alone can take away our sins. He alone has risen from the dead and sent his spirit to give us new life because he alone has called us to dwell with him in eternal life forever. And we're now told to proclaim that confession, the good news, even as we pray that each one of us may continue to grow and our own understanding of Jesus Christ and the glories of His salvation until that day when we stand face to face before Him. It's a great hope we have. And let's pray. Father, we come before You this morning and we thank You for Your Word, which reminds us of the power of God at work in Jesus Christ to give sight that we might see clearly. You did it in the blind man, working exactly as... You knew was best. You did it in the disciples, bringing them to understand who You were. And You have done it in our hearts in so many instances, showing us that You are the Savior of the world. Father, would You continue to open blind eyes? Would You continue to give sight of who You are? Would You continue to call people to know You? Would You give us grace, strength, and the movement of Your Spirit to confess Christ and share Him with those around us. And Father, I pray for each one of us that day by day we would grow an increasingly clear understanding of who You are and what You've done, that we might have a greater and greater understanding of the immeasurable greatness of Your salvation, and that it would yield all the glory to You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.